Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries that surround it. Some are solved, but some cases remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. When you are the child of a famous personality, you become famous yourself, whether you like it or not. We all know of Blue Ivy, Surrey Cruz, Malia and Sasha Obama. We know their famous parents, but they didn't ask for the attention. And sometimes that attention can be very detrimental. One element can lead to kidnapping. Although it's not as prevalent today, kidnapping for ransom was once a real issue for famous families. The targets were children of very rich people. Lindbergh, Hearst, Getty. In the summer of 1973, John Paul Getty III was snatched off the streets of Rome by several masked men. From there, he was held for months in awful conditions, while his captors waited for a huge ransom. He was starved, beaten, and during one cruel episode, had parts of his body mailed to ignite an incentive to pay the ransom. This is the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III. Although it doesn't happen much today, kidnapping for ransom was something wealthy families had to worry about in the past. 
Probably the most famous of these is the 1932 abduction of famous aviator Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son, Charles Lindbergh Jr. A year after the incident I'm going to discuss today, the wealthy heir to the Hearst magazine fortune, Patty Hearst, was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. It was a real nightmare for these elite families. And to truly understand all the elements of this case, in this particular family, I'm going to talk about how they came into their fortune. We've all heard of J. Paul Getty. There's Getty Images, the Getty Museum, and Getty Oil. At one time, Fortune Magazine named him the richest living American. So how did he come into this fortune? In 1903, John Paul's father, lawyer George Franklin Getty, moved his family to Oklahoma. And at the early age of 21, his father financed him through the Minnehoma Oil Company. Within two years, J. Paul Getty made his fortune buying and selling oil leases. And he was quite the playboy and lived quite the playboy lifestyle before returning back to business and seriously focusing himself. He grew rich at a time when most Americans were wondering where their next meal was going to come from. It was the Great Depression. He continued to pick up more companies and add more oil reserves. In 1949, he made a landmark deal with Saudi Arabia's king for $9.5 million. This was for land between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Then he put another $30 million into oil exploration and production. This paid off in 1953, when his company hit oil that produced 16 million barrels a day. That company was then sold to Texaco in 1984, and today it's part of Chevron. J. Paul Getty was the richest man of his era, but he was a consummate miser. He reportedly installed payphones at his Sutton Place estate in Surrey, a man with millions who was worried about who was going to use his phone. This very cold attitude plays a lot into the life of his future grandson. So he would have five sons through five different wives, and one of those sons was John Paul Getty Jr. The family moved to Europe in the late 1950s, and John Paul Getty Jr. was put in the position of running the Getty Oil Company's Italian division. He married his high school sweetheart, water polo champion Gail Harris, and together they had four children. It was Eileen, Mark, Ariadne, and the eldest, John Paul Getty III, also known as Paul. He was born on November 4, 1956. He spent much of his childhood in Rome, but unfortunately he never saw much of his father. After his parents divorced in 1964, his father remarried again in 1966. This time he took up with the step-granddaughter to famous painter Augustus John. Her name was Talitha Pohl, model and actress. The newly married couple engaged in a lifestyle of debauchery with lots of partying and drugs. So much so that they dubbed their home in Morocco the Pleasure Palace. There they engaged in orgies and a bottle of rum and a gram of heroin a day. Paul barely saw his father. It's odd because John Paul Getty Jr. had the same distant relationship with his own father. 
J. Paul Getty barely saw him during his first 23 years, and he responded to letters that he wrote to him with spelling corrections. Their relationship was distant and strained until Junior went to work for his father in Italy. So you would think that he would want a better relationship with his own son rather than repeat history. Even after Talitha died of a heroin overdose, their relationship was still not ideal. His father supplied him with marijuana, and his father's mistress showed Paul how to snort cocaine when he was only 14. So his father's ways seeped into the young man he became. He was expelled from seven different boarding schools, one for painting the hallways after being inspired by Manson's Helter Skelter. Eventually, he ended up staying at St. George's English School in Rome. After his stepmother's death, his father moved to England, but Paul decided to stay in Rome. And there he lived a very bohemian lifestyle. He wanted to be an artist, so he sold paintings and occasionally posed nude for classes. One time, he was arrested for hurling a Molotov cocktail during a left-wing demonstration. The police in Rome became very familiar with Paul. He was quite notorious for crashing cars and motorbikes. You know, he was your typical spoiled rich kid. After boarding school, he stayed part-time with his girlfriend, Martine. And when he wasn't there, he was staying in an apartment with a friend named Marcello. He said, At that point, Marcello's place was crazy. A wild scene. People never slept. It was coke, coke, coke. I was selling diamonds. We had machine guns. We were starting to get into big drug deals. He was running with a very dangerous crowd, and that may have played a role in what would happen in his very unfortunate future. On July 10, 1973, at around 3 a.m., the 16-year-old was walking back from a night of partying. He's wearing tight jeans, a glittery t-shirt, and a boot with a broken heel, so he very much looked the part of the rock star. He had just had drinks at a bar with Mick and Bianca Dreiger, and Roman Polanski. He later told author Charles Fox of the night's events for the book Uncommon Youth. He said, I realized the car was stopping alongside me. These men were coming out of it. They grabbed me and wrestled me to the floor behind the front seats of the car. There were three guys, two in front and one in back. I could feel his heels resting on me. I slept and we drove south for hours. What Paul didn't realize was that he'd actually been kidnapped by the Nandrangheta, an organized crime group centered in Calabria, Italy. They were a mafia-style organization that had actually been kidnapping for ransom in Italy for years. And eventually, they would become the most powerful crime syndicate in Italy in the late 90s and early 2000s. They were tied with the Sicilian mafia, but actually operated independently from them. So when Paul was snatched while walking through the Piazza Farnese in Rome, he had no idea how serious the situation was. He said, I woke up feeling very shitty. So thirsty, I said, water, water, water. But they would only give me whiskey. I must have drunk a bottle and a half on the trip. I didn't realize at all what was going on. I was just, just, just so fucking drunk. I thought they were cops. When I woke again, the car had stopped. It was getting light outside. 
I heard them talking. They blindfolded me. I was carried out, feet and hands. They laid me on the grass. When his mother, Gail, who also lived in Rome, didn't hear from him, she telephoned one of his roommates. But he said he hadn't seen Paul in hours, which was very unusual. So Gail began to worry. Two days later, she would receive an ominous phone call. When her phone rang, she heard a very southern Italian accent ask if she was Signora Getty. The voice said, "On Paul, we are kidnappers and we have him captive. He is safe, but will require a lot of money to release him. In fact, they were demanding $17 million. Gail had been divorced from Paul's father for almost nine years, so she didn't have that kind of money. But when she could hold the kidnapper this, he just told her to get it from London. They were obviously referring to Paul's father, who had returned to London to live. But he was not either able to pay this hefty ransom himself. Due to his drug use, he'd been cut off from his fortune by his wealthy father. The kidnapper had also suggested she contact her father-in-law because he, quote, has all the money in the world. They forbade her to involve the police and said they would be in contact with further instructions. So, of course, Gail went into a panic. Her son had just been kidnapped. Unsure of what to do, she called her parents. They suggested she call the police despite what the kidnappers told her. She did, and the Italian police came to her home. But they didn't take the whole situation seriously. But this is probably for several reasons, one of which being that Paul joked about faking his own kidnapping to get money out of his grandfather. They told Gail that he would show up soon enough and not to worry. You have to remember, he was pretty well known to the police through his shenanigans. In fact, they called him the Golden Hippie. But it wasn't a hoax at all. Paul had indeed been kidnapped. After they grabbed him, he was chloroformed, gagged, and blindfolded. He was repeatedly hit on the head with their pistol butts. After slipping into unconsciousness, he woke up early in the south of Italy, in a cattle hut in the woods, in the mountains of Calabria, a region in southern Italy, south of Naples, and north of Sicily. This is about 200 miles away from his home. And I know I'm probably butchering the name of this town. This was the kidnapper's hideout. He was bound at his wrists with rope, and he could feel blood dripping down his neck from his head wounds. About 10 days passed before Gail heard from these kidnappers again. She received another phone call in which they said they could offer a severed finger as proof that Paul was still alive. And then she also received a letter directly from Paul, and it said, Dear Mummy, since Monday I have fallen into the hands of kidnappers. Don't let me be killed. Pay, I beg you. Pay up as soon as possible if you wish me well. If you delay, it is very dangerous to me. I love you, Paul. Gail pleaded with her ex-husband to speak with his father and get the ransom money, but he absolutely refused to speak to his father. He didn't seem very concerned himself, maybe thinking it was a hoax. He reportedly said, Do you realize that if I have to pay the ransom, I'd have to sell my entire library for that useless son? But Gail wouldn't let that stop her. She phoned J. Paul Getty every day. She never got through, always being told by a staff member that he was unavailable. 
and meanwhile the kidnappers were growing very impatient. They were very angry that the ransom wasn't on its way. They thought this was going to be an easy transition. I mean, Paul was from a ridiculously wealthy family. Why wouldn't they just pay and get him back? J. Paul Getty held a press conference stating the reason behind his hesitation. He said, Although I see my grandson infrequently, and I am not particularly close to him, I love him nonetheless. However, I don't believe in paying kidnappers. I have 14 grandchildren, and if I pay one penny now, I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. And this is even after being sent a letter directly from Paul saying, I know that we haven't been close in a while, but I hope you know that I love you. Please do whatever you can to get me out of here. This is serious. Love, Paul. He even promised his grandfather to clean up his act and behave. After four weeks of waiting, Gail went to Italian TV to make an appeal. And that seemed to work because the kidnappers called again. They insisted Paul was alive, but she wanted proof. So she would ask questions of which only Paul knew the answer. Then the anonymous men would call back with the answer. So she knew that Paul was still alive. The kidnappers kept on the move, never staying in one place. They kept him chained and gagged most of the time. And they kept their identities hidden by wearing ski masks or nylon stockings over their faces. One told him right after the kidnapping, if you want something, ask for it. And if the answer is yes, you'll hear one clap. If the answer is no, you'll hear two claps. Remember this because no one will speak to you again. After leaving the hut, they stationed themselves in the forest, this time making Paul build a hut for himself in a gorge. He said, I was chained near a stream. It was an incredibly long chain. There was a little bench beach of sand where I drew pictures with sticks. I made friends with this little bird. I left crumbs and it came every day. I liked that I could do something for someone. But they killed his new pet bird as an act of cruelty, along with forcing him to play Russian roulette by putting a forty-five caliber gun against his head and pulling the trigger. So he was cold, hungry, bored, and very scared far away from his home and not knowing what his future held. His one piece of happiness was a transistor radio. Sometimes he would hear news of his kidnapping on it, but it, like the bird, was taken away from him. And it was becoming more and more apparent that this ransom might not be paid at all by his family. Even though as a young, red-headed child, he was his grandfather's favorite, his wild antics had made him fall out of favor with the senior Getty. The men eventually got rid of the masks they wore, now protecting themselves by saying that if he looked at them, they would just kill him. There was one particular incident in which one of the men they called Chipmunk was supposedly seen by the captive. The issue was taken care of very swiftly. Chipmunk's burnt and mutilated body was found the next day in Naples. They took every precaution to keep the plan from falling apart. They wanted their payday. And although he couldn't see their faces, he could tell a bit by their clothing. He said they looked like very ignorant people, very poor, judging from the way they dressed. Baggy suits with pastel colors cut very badly. The colors clashed. Their shoes were loafers that didn't fit very well and their socks were too short. 
After staying at the gorge, they then moved him to a small cave where he was kept chained to a stake. The cave was so small that Paul had to sleep on his side. They threatened him by saying it would be his final resting place. They said, please try to escape. We can use that as an excuse to kill you, you fucking little rich smut. The men were growing very impatient. They told Paul that they would cut off one of his fingers if they didn't get the ransom soon. One night came and one of the men gave him the radio back, and he knew something was up because they were never nice to him. In the morning, they said they were going to give him a haircut. They cooked him steaks, and he ate until he couldn't eat anymore. They made him drink cheap brandy, and he kept looking at his fingers, wondering which one they were going to cut off. The men then blindfolded him and told him to stick a gag in his mouth and bite down on it, so he knew he was in for some kind of awful pain. They cut his hair, making sure to put alcohol all over his head. And that's when he realized it wasn't going to be a finger they cut off. It was going to be an ear. He remembers feeling the blade rest on his ear. He was held still by other men as his new barber sliced off his right ear in two slices. He said he remembers it sounding like ripping paper. But the bleeding was so intense, the men panicked. I mean, it just would not stop. He ended up bleeding for 17 hours straight. And in an effort to fight off infection, they gave him high doses of penicillin. But they gave him way too much and he became allergic to it. He was incredibly sick, walking around in a haze from all the vomiting. And after a few days, they finally urged him to walk around. Rats scratched at bandages on his head at night. And when they took off his bandage, he remembers it being so hard from the dried blood that it was like a cast. He kept thinking about how he would never wear sunglasses again, even though the situation was much more dire than that. In the later end of October, the captors took the severed ear with a lock of his hair and sent it with a letter to Il Messaggero, an Italian newspaper. The letter said, this is Paul's ear. If we don't get some money within 10 days, the other ear will arrive. In other words, he will arrive in little pieces. But the only problem with this was there was a postal strike going on. The letter wasn't even received until November 10th. By this time, the ear was moldy and decomposing. When they got it, the newspaper notified Gail, who came to look at the evidence. When she saw freckles on the ear, she knew that it was her son's. After she contacted his father again and still received no help. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He told her he wouldn't know the difference between an ear and a prosciutto. So she took the photos of the ear and had them blown up. She sent him to his father in an effort to shock some sense into him. And at this point, she was willing to do anything to get her son back. John Paul Jr. told her that if she put her three other kids on a plane and granted him full custody, he would let her have $1 million. She told him $5 million and she would have the children on a plane that day. They went back and forth with this, with negotiating. And whether it was the photos that she sent or the family finally coming to its senses, the ransom was going to be paid. J. Paul Getty negotiated it down to $2.9 million. He would pay $2.2 million himself, the amount that was tax deductible. The rest would be loaned to his son for repayment at a 4% interest rate. Kind of horrible. On December 10th, a representative of the Getty family would be sent to the rendezvous spot with the money. This man was 54-year-old ex-CIA American operative Fletcher Chase. He first went to Rome to see Gail, where he there made a pass at her. And they also put her under surveillance, thinking she might be involved in the plot. Chase was to drive with the cash in three sacks, each banknote of Lyra, had been microfilmed by the police. He would know when to stop when they threw gravel at the windshield, and he would then leave the money by the side of the road. But it was two whole days before the phone rang with instructions of where to go. Gail went with Fletcher Chase when the time came, and since the police were monitoring her phone, they too followed. That night it was snowing very heavily. Chase was told to drive towards Naples, His car was pelted with pebbles, the sign to stop. And there was a car in front of Chase's in which three men held up their fingers and rubbed them together, the sign for money. So he put the money at the side of the road as instructed. And one of the police cars following Chase had a plainclothes detective and a woman inside. They got out pretending to be a couple taking pictures. It was kind of a lame effort to get pictures of the suspects, but it worked the police were able to ID one of the men retrieving the ransom. Paul distinctly remembers being told to dress that day, and he was soon blindfolded and taken to a car. After quite some time and hours of driving, they told him to get out. They told him not to move, that someone was behind him. They said they were going to call his mother. Then they just said, Chow, 
The next thing he knew, the cars were driving away. He quickly took off his blindfold. He said he wasn't going to wait around in case they returned. So he took off for the highway. The problem was he looked very awful. He was covered with blood-soaked bandages, so no one wanted to stop. Somehow he got a truck to stop. He looked inside and he said, I'm Paul Getty. Will you give me a ride to the police station? The trucker took one look at him and took off. Meanwhile, his mother and the search party were panicking. I mean, they paid the ransom, but still there was no sign of Paul. The captor said he would be found near where the money was placed. Police searched the hills and found his blanket and his blindfold. So Gail was hoping that he might have headed towards home. Luckily, a message on the radio said a mail had been picked up and taken to the police station. After the trucker took off, he actually radioed the police. So everyone rushed to the station. And there, Gail barely recognized her own son. He was filthy, emaciated, with a big blood-stained bandage covering his head. Paul remembers shaking hands with the police chief when he got there. And it was very ironic because the man was missing a finger. And he remembers laughing to himself about a man without a finger shaking hands with a man without an ear. He was just happy that this whole ordeal was over. Italian police surrounded a house in early 1974. It was the home of 35-year-old Antonio Mancuso, a carpenter. He wouldn't initially open the door, but eventually surrendered. After that, they captured seven more men in connection with the kidnapping. One was a 26-year-old hospital orderly, Domenico Barbino, who was also a drug dealer. And some think he was the one that might have been the contact between the men and Paul's circle of drug dealing and drug taking friends. And all nine men would be arrested and tried. One was Girolamo Piramali, or Momo, as he was known. He was the boss of the Nandrangheta. He was acquitted. Another man was Saviero Mamaliti, or Saro. And this man was supposedly the brains behind the whole plot. Out of the nine men, all were acquitted, only two serving prison sentences. And most of the ransom was never recovered. It was used to buy trucks needed to establish a transport monopoly in the construction of the Giola Taro port. And it was also used as seed capital to get into the cocaine market. Paul spent about two weeks at a private clinic to heal. While there, his mother urged him to call his grandfather on his birthday and thank him for paying the ransom money. He did, but J. Paul Getty refused to come to the phone. After recuperating, he then went on an Austrian ski holiday. and He was happy to discover that he could in fact still wear sunglasses. After the trip in 1974, he married a German girl, six years his senior. Her name was Gisela Martin Zatcher, and she was five months pregnant with her child. The bride wore black, and he wore a Mal-type suit. He was so out of it on drugs that the presiding official had a hard time understanding Paul when he spoke. He was just 18 when his son Balthazar was born in 1975. But in marrying, he broke some kind of legal injunction with the Gettys. Pro- it was pro- 
keeping him <laughs> from marrying before the age of 22. This disqualified him from his income and the family trust. In the mid-1970s, Paul moved to Los Angeles. And there he spent time with his mother and trying to forget the whole thing. It had taken its toll on him. He was very paranoid and had trouble sleeping. He became dependent on brandy, which was oddly the choice of drink for his captors. He turned once again to drugs, preferring to exist in a stupor. But this hurt his marriage and his attempt for a normal life. He had enrolled in Pepperdine University in Malibu to study Chinese history. His grandfather had given him a small allowance since he was trying to get on the right track. His relationship with his father and grandfather never recovered after the events of the kidnapping. In 1976, J. Paul Getty died. At the time of his death, he was estimated to be worth between 200 and 400 million. And in spite of all that wealth, he gave very specific instructions that Paul not be given any money. And he only left $500 to Paul's father. But he did leave a considerable fortune to 12 different women who had, quote, provided comfort to him over the years. Regardless, Paul didn't harbor any feelings of hate towards them, saying, not all the Getty family are interested in becoming billionaires. Even though the senior Getty cut him out, his grandmother Sarah had established a trust for the children and the grandchildren, and from that he got a sizable amount of money. A year after his grandfather's death, Paul went for surgery on his ear. They used rib cartilage to try to rebuild it, and luckily after the loss of his ear, he still sustained his hearing. But even though the surgery was a success, he still wasn't happy in life. He delved deeper into drugs and alcohol. He was drinking a bottle of wild turkey a day and taking loads of drugs. He desperately tried to clean up, but that act itself might have caused the next misfortune in his life. In 1981, he suffered liver failure and a stroke. Some think the methadone that he was taking to clean up might have caused the stroke. He also had Valium and alcohol in his system. And Paul was in a coma for six weeks. During that time, his brain was deprived of oxygen. So the whole mess left him partially blind and a quadriplegic. His care became very expensive. He couldn't speak, and he had to be spoon-fed. He couldn't bathe or dress himself. So once again, his mother turned to Paul's father for help, only once again to be refused. His father refused to help pay for the round-the-clock care that was needed, saying Paul had brought it upon himself. So Paul and his mother sued his father for the 28000 a month it took to cover the medical expenses, and they won. The judge provide, presiding over the case said about John Paul Getty Jr., I think Mr. Getty should be ashamed of himself. He's spending far more on these legal details than it would cost him to measure up to his moral and legal obligation. Being the good mom that she was, Gail modified her home into a facility of full staff and all the medical equipment needed to care for her son. And he worked very hard on his recovery. It was a daily regimen of exercise, physiotherapy, and speech therapy. It was not easy, and every day he was exhausted. By 1987, he was better, and he was able to gain some kind of autonomy. 
He ventured out to the movies a bit and concerts and was even able to ski with the help of a metal brace. However, he never fully recovered, remaining handicapped for the rest of his life. And after his divorce in 1993, he stayed with his mother. On February 5, 2011, at the age of 54, Paul died in Wormsley, Buckingham in England after a long illness. His son, actor Balthazar Getty, said his father, quote, taught us how to live our lives and overcome obstacles and extreme adversity, and we shall miss him dearly. And from the way it sounds, Paul did a much better job fathering than his father or his grandfather before him. He was survived by his mother, his brother, Matt, his sisters Eileen and Ariadne, a stepdaughter, Anna, and six grandchildren and step-grandchildren. His sister Eileen was well known for a scandal in which she contracted AIDS. She thought she'd got it through a blood transfusion, but realized it was actually from unprotected sex during an extramarital affair. This broke up her high-profile marriage to the son of Elizabeth Taylor, Christopher Wilding. But apparently she and Elizabeth Taylor remained close. After many years in the spotlight and suffering so much hardship, Paul was finally at peace. That fatal day in July of 73 forever haunted him. Money can't buy love, and it certainly might keep your ransom from being paid, especially if your relatives care more about money than they do your well-being. If it weren't for his mother, Paul Getty might never have been found alive. She seems to be the only one concerned for him's safety, and it took her months before she could even arrange his release. J. Paul Getty might have had all the money in the world, but apparently he had ice for a heart. And it's no wonder Paul Getty never emotionally recovered and succumbed to an ailment created by drugs and alcohol. Like many rich kids, he never felt the love he needed from some of those that were closest to him. Months of captivity and losing an ear change a person, and definitely not for the better. And even though he tried, he never really stood a chance. He might have been born with the proverbial spoon, silver spoon in his mouth, but I envy the life that he had. And it's sad to hear of any child that doesn't get the love that they need and want. He didn't deserve the cruelty at the hands of his kidnappers because he was a rich kid either. I feel bad that he never had a normal life. We may envy the rich for their money, but we don't realize it doesn't buy happiness. The story of Paul's kidnapping will be coming to the screen soon. Ridley Scott has directed a film called All the Money in the World, due to be released this year. And it stars Michelle Williams as Gail, Mark Wahlberg as Fletcher Chase, and Charlie Plummer as Paul Getty. And you may have heard it in the news recently. Kevin Spacey was originally cast as J. Paul Getty, but after the scandal of his sexually harassing several people, he was digitally removed from the film, and his scenes were shot with Christopher Plummer as a replacement. Ridley Scott had to do something similar in 2000 after actor Oliver Reed died while filming Gladiator. Also coming to the screen will be a miniseries on television called Trust, directed by Danny Boyle, the famed director of Trainspotting and Slumdog Millionaire. This will star Donald Sutherland as J. Paul Getty, Hilary Swank as Gail, and Brendan Fraser as Fletcher Chase. 
There are a couple of books on the subject, and one of which is going to be re-released in conjunction with the Ridley Scott movie. So it'll be very interesting to check all these out. I didn't know much about the case at all. In fact, it was a preview of the movie that made me want to look into it again. I only knew the very vague details. After reading about it, I'm not so sad that I come from a family without money now. So thanks for listening this week. I just needed to make one correction. I completely butchered the name of the artist that did my logo. I'm not going to try to pronounce it the correct way. I just want to say I'm sorry. Go check out his artwork. He's amazing. I'm not the best with names, as you can tell from this whole episode. But once again, I want to thank him for an awesome logo. It's really cool. Also, a quick mention, the Tampa serial killer has obviously been caught. You might have seen this all over the news. He's 24-year-old Howard Donaldson III, and he was caught when one of his fellow McDonald's workers was given a bag to hold for him. But when that employee looked inside, he saw a gun. When he saw that gun, he gave it to a police officer that was at that McDonald's. And through that gun, they were able to determine that it was the one used to murder four people in the Tampa area. But it's still not clear why he committed these murders. He seems like a very normal guy and kind of typical for his age. He's a quiet college graduate with no criminal record. And almost everyone they talk to describe him as very quiet and polite. He didn't have any connection to the people he's accused of murdering. It's a really strange case, and I'm really interested to see where it goes. Like, why did this guy do this? Very, very odd. So please check out Red Rum Blonde on social media. I have a Red Rum Blonde Facebook and Instagram page. And I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Blonde Red Rum. I've been a little behind on things, but I'll have some recommendations for you next week. I'll have some podcasts that you can check out, and hopefully a book or two. I think working in retail during the holiday season has kind of taken its toll on me. I'm not able to do much then, work, eat, sleep, see the boyfriend and the kid for a bit, and work on the podcast. I've been quite exhausted, and it's not good for my mood either. People are pretty mean this time of year, but it'll be over soon enough. So thanks a lot for listening, guys. It still makes me very happy. See you all next week.